You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. All right, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Welcome in. As Luke said, we've been going through Mark and stuff. So, just kidding. Uh, so, full disclosure, told the nine o'clock, my notes, uh, the printer's broken in there or just out of ink or something, and they don't trust us to change it. So, I don't have notes this morning. I'm uh, regretting the iPhone mini because I'm going to try to read off this. Uh, last gathering, I got about three words off it, but I'll zoom. I'll do what I can. So, if I look confused, just nod your head in agreement and we'll continue, okay? Um, but yeah, I appreciate you guys being here. Excited to celebrate the Lord's Day with you. And uh, the book of Mark's been great. Uh, I love this book a lot. It's really great to be going through the Gospels and be able to, uh, you know, just obviously this is all the, the words of Christ in one sense, but to be able to look at the words of Jesus and his interaction with the disciples and the Pharisees and, and the people of his day is an amazing thing for us. And it's really, really helpful. It's been helpful for me. Um, just, just a few quick things. So uh, you see what we're going through uh, is the miracle of Jesus feeding the 4,000. If you remember from you know, some weeks ago, a couple chapters before, Jesus did a similar miracle, and these are two separate things, but he fed 5,000, right? And so we get this kind of similar miracle going on. He's going to do it for a second time, and it's very relevant for what we're going to see in his interaction with the disciples in particular. Uh, but I'm not going to spend too much time on that portion of the text because it's already been covered uh, in a really great way by court. Uh, so you can go back and look at that sermon uh, if you want on the podcast. But we're not going to spend too much time because we do have a lot to get through. And so I want to kind of sprint towards the end as best we can and get there. And then generally just a lot of text to cover. So we're going to do our best to, to fly over and emphasize what I feel like should be emphasized this morning. And uh, we'll go from there. So I appreciate you guys being here. Let's pray together and we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is uh, not something that's lost on us, that there's been many of your saints throughout history that have bled and died, that we might have this book in our hands. And we are grateful that we get tons of translations and helps and study Bibles and, and things to help us know your word more. But this text reminds us this morning that without the power of your spirit, we will not see as we ought to see. We won't hear as we ought to hear, and our hearts will be hardened. And so, Lord, help us not to be that way, but to have spiritual eyes, spiritual ears, to see your word, to know it, to meet you in it, and to be changed by you. It's why we open up this book every single Sunday, because, God, we, we know that you work through it, and we long for you to do that very thing. So help us, Lord, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so what we'll kind of do this morning is I want to start to kind of read through the text. I want to highlight just a few things. I also want to say uh, happy Memorial Day too. Totally forgot to mention that the first gathering. So you can write all emails to court at providencetx.org if you have any complaints. But we are very grateful for uh, the men and women who've died for our country. Um, all right, so let's start in verse 1. We're going to read through it, and we'll just kind of talk as we go. So let's look at chapter 8, verse 1. It says this. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. So we see first here, uh, these people have been with Jesus in this desolate place in the wilderness for three days. 
It's pretty amazing, right? They've been out there, what seems like they've been fasting the whole time, they've had nothing to eat. It's hard for me to sit through a Sunday gathering and not think about lunch, where these guys were out with Jesus for three days, right? I mean, it's pretty amazing. And Jesus sees them and he has compassion on them, right? He's been with them. He knows that they're hungry. Uh, He knows that they're so hungry, in fact, that if he were to send them away uh, out of the wilderness, back to their homes, that they would faint along the way and wouldn't be able to make the journey. And so Jesus is very aware of the situation and he has compassion on them, which is amazing to see, right? Jesus' compassion for the people, not just for their spiritual needs, but for their physical needs as well. And I love this because we have a tendency, if we're not careful, to kind of separate uh, physical and spiritual things. And really, uh, there are realities both in the physical and spiritual, but the Bible doesn't really separate it that way, right? It's actually uh, looked at it as a, a very bad thing that, you know, in death we'll be separated temporarily from our bodies, right? And then we'll be, uh, it's the amazing idea of the resurrection is that we'll be reunited with our bodies. And so my point here is that Jesus has compassion not just on the spiritual things, but on the the physical, and that's important, right? Jesus sees our circumstances and he has compassion. So he sees the crowd and says, we got to feed them. Now, if you remember uh, the story from Jesus feeding the 5,000, uh, you know, basically they're out in a, once again, in a desolate place and there's no way to get food. And he looks at his disciples and says, well, what are we going to do about it? Well, you know, and they're like, well, there's no way we're going to be able to do anything, right? Where are we going to get bread out here? We have no resources. We don't have a place that we can just go by. We're not going to be able to feed them, right? And this is a similar circumstance. So let's look what happens. Verse four, and his disciple would answer him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, well, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd and they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied and they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Okay, so what happens here is once again he looks to the disciples, and the disciples are dumbfounded. Now remember, they already went through this circumstance, so it should have been the obvious answer for them when he said, we got to feed them, should have been, all right, well, here's what we got. Do that thing you did again a couple of weeks ago, right? That's what they should have said. But instead, they asked the same question, which is, how in the world are we going to feed these people? We're out in the desert, right? We don't have enough bread for anyone. We can't just go buy it. And so Jesus, being patient with his disciples, once again says, okay, well, what do you got? Well, we have seven loaves, okay? And we have a couple of fish. And what Jesus does in this miraculous way is he blesses it before God the Father. And he tells the disciples here, take all of these baskets full and go give it to the people. It says that everyone ate and was completely satisfied, right? So everyone went from really hungry, about to faint, to completely full and satisfied in just a moment from Jesus multiplying that. So it's a great miracle, him feeding. As we talked about with the 5,000, it's the same circumstance here, which is there was 4,000 men plus women and children. We get that from the account in uh, Matthew chapters 15 and 16, which talks about this same story. And we'll reference that a few times just for your information. But Jesus does this great miracle and it says there were seven baskets left over. And this is just kind of not really integral to the story, but kind of 
good food for thought is that when uh, Jesus talks about the baskets that happened with the 5,000, these were actually kind of smaller baskets. And then in this story, there's actually seven baskets that were much larger. It's kind of the same style basket that they used to uh, basically put Paul down the wall when he was sneaking out of a city, right, in the book of Acts. And so uh, there's an abundance is the point, right? Jesus does this miracle where not only does he just give everyone a little bit of something with it, but everyone's bellies are full. And there's these seven like huge laundry baskets basically full of leftover bread and fish uh, that they have provisions for when they leave, right? And so Jesus doesn't just provide, but he provides abundantly, which is great. Um, And so that's what we get from this. And it's important to know this context, okay? And there's a few differences from the 5,000 and 4,000, but both of them are going to be referenced here. And so now knowing that story, this miracle that Jesus did in multiplying the food, his provision and compassion for the people, this is going to color everything we're about to talk about now. And so what we're going to get into is get two interactions, one, they, they hop on the boat and they, they head to another city, Delmanutha, okay? They're heading over there and they're going to have an interaction with the Pharisees. And we get from the account in Matthew that it was probably the Pharisees and the Sadducees together that they had this interaction with. And then from there, he's going to go and have an interaction with his disciples back on the boat after he has this circumstance here. But what I want us to look at is the spiritual blindness of both the Pharisees and his disciples, okay? When we talk about spiritual blindness, the Bible uses this language over and over again. So that's why you see Jesus use it. He's actually quoting a lot of what's going on in the Old Testament, right? It's a direct quote. God is always asking his people throughout uh, history, do you have eyes but don't see? You have ears but can't hear or understand? Are your hearts hardened that you don't know what's being said to you or what's happening, right? And this, is, uh, this is kind of an indictment, right? Or we get a text like Ephesians 2, which says all of us are or at least were, dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, right? But by God's grace, we've been awakened. And so my point is that all of us are spiritually deaf, spiritually blind, apart from the grace of God, right? Rescuing us. And that's when when God rescues us, we can see, right? We're finally able to see how we ought to see the true spiritual things. And so... It's important to keep in mind as we go through this. But let's look at the interaction. So we'll start in uh, verse 11. So they got to Dalmanutha. Here's what happened. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he let them go into the boat again, and he went to the other side. So the Pharisees and probably the Sadducees, they were always bickering with Christ, right? It was a constant thing for them as they were trying to ask him these tricky questions so they might catch him where he would mess up and then therefore would kind of prove what their thought was, which is he's definitely not the Messiah. He's probably just doing things because of demons, right? That's, that's the only, only explanation for how he can heal people and do all these mighty works. He's not of God because if he was, we would know it, right? That's how the Pharisees acted uh, all the time. And the Sadducees, they were always trying to trick him. And uh, Jesus never let it happen. Obviously, he would just kind of reverse the question and then they would, they would fight and then they would look stupid, right? That's how he would do it. He was very good at what he did with them. But this is what's happening, right? They're not asking because they just want Jesus to prove it. They're not like Thomas, right? Thomas, who was one of the disciples when the resurrection happened and he was the only one that didn't get to see it, what did he say? He said, oh, well, if I could just touch the wounds of Christ or see the holes in his hands, I would believe. But if that doesn't happen, I'm not going to believe, right? He was desperate. But the Pharisees, that's not why they're asking. They don't want him to do some sign from heaven so they could say, yes, he is the Messiah. The Pharisees want him dead 
They want to mock him and shame him, and Jesus is well aware of this. So when it says they wanted to test him, it wasn't like a litmus test to see if he was the Messiah. It was because they wanted to catch him up and embarrass him. And I love the reaction from Jesus because we don't get to see this often in the text, but it says that Jesus sighed deeply. Now, these words don't sound uh, really cool in English. They just sound like, ah, you know, ugh. But it was much more than that, right? It was like Jesus was grieved, right? Probably a better word would be something like he was, um, you know, vexed or frustrated, right? He was at wit's end, if you will, with them. And it's good to see this because we believe in a doctrine called the hypostatic union. And essentially what that means is that we believe when Jesus was born of a virgin and came to earth that he was both fully God, 100%, and also both fully man, 100%. So it's not like it was 50-50. It's not like he gave up half uh, of his godhood or his deity, if you will, to take on flesh, but rather he became both simultaneously. And and this is something we hold to as an important doctrine of our faith, right? And so why I bring that up is because it's not often, you do see this in the text, but it's interesting to get a glimpse into Jesus' humanity where he's actually showing visceral emotion to something that's happening, right? Right? Because we, we also believe in a doctrine that, that God is impassable. And I don't want to get all into it, but essentially God's not ruled by his emotions, right? God is unchangeable. He never changes. He's never like thrown off by something like he didn't see it coming. All of a sudden he starts crying. But we do see that in Jesus, right? We get to see his humanity come out. And so Jesus sighed deeply. You know, he, he, there was probably an audible like, my goodness, right? He is kind of broken over this, right? He's grieving over the Pharisees and what they're doing. And Jesus has been dealing with this for a while now. We've seen this a few times in the book of Mark and you'll continue to see it, but they're constantly with their hardness of hearts. And, you know, the Pharisees were in every way appeared to be godly, but they were false, right? I mean, that's what Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs at one point, where he says, you love to clean the outside of the cup, but inside you're filthy, right? There was no true religion in them and they were constantly trying to catch him and he just, he sighs. Come on, <laughs> how long are we going to do this, right? I think Jesus is gen, gen, genuine, whew, there we go. I'm not even going to say it. He was truly grieved, all right? It's not going to mess it up there. <sighs> we'll get through it. Don't worry, guys. He was grieved at the Pharisees, right? It broke his heart that all they could do on repeat was hate him, reject him, the Messiah, the one who came to save his people and all they could do was try to test him and hate him and all these things. And it says, Jesus, he sighed deeply. He said, why does this generation seek a sign? The sign is right here, right? The Pharisees and the people didn't want the substance, the real thing. They just wanted a sign. They wanted to be wowed or whatever. And so he sighs deeply. And he says, a sign will not be given to this generation. That's Jesus' response. Now, in the Matthew account, he actually adds something there, which I think is very important. He says that a sign will not be given to this evil generation except the sign of Jonah, which if you remember, I know we've gone through this before in a sermon, but Jesus actually uses uh, the story of Jonah to talk about his resurrection, right? And it's a pretty easy analogy, right? Jonah was basically swallowed up in the belly of the fish for three days and then comes back out on land alive, And then in the same way, right, Jesus is going to be swallowed up in the belly of the earth a few chapters later for three days, and then he's going to rise from the dead fully alive, right? The resurrection, that's what Jesus was talking about. And so Jesus is, and you got to remember too, Jesus did many 
signs and wonders, right? I mean, he just literally just did one. We just read about one in this actual text, right? And so over and over again, the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have seen Jesus do amazing things. So much so that they said, the only way you do this is because you got a demon. That's it. That's the only way you could do this because there's no way this is from God. And so Jesus, knowing the Pharisees, a sign's not going to help them, right? It's not going to help them. I think of Luke 16, right? There's a parable. I won't read it or get too far into it, but essentially um, <clears throat> there's a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. And the whole life, this rich man basically kind of spurned Lazarus, never helped him out, was very evil, did wicked things. And then they both die on the same day and they go to what's called you know, Abraham's bosom. That's where Lazarus goes. And then the, the rich man goes to Hades, right? And they're having this awkward dialogue, uh, you know, together in the afterlife over this, this chasm. And essentially it boils down to the, the man who was wicked and lived his whole life and goes to Hades is basically begging Abraham to let Lazarus like go back to his family and warn them. So that way they wouldn't come and be in the same position that he is for eternal judgment. And then Abraham's response to him is that if they didn't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to listen even if someone rose from the dead, right? Even a great sign like that. If you didn't hear the word, right, that they're not going to believe it even if there was this miracle that happened. So Jesus knows that the Pharisees and miracles not going to help, but he says, look, there's going to be one, it's going to be one sign that's given to you. And that's the resurrection. That's me laying my life down for the sins of my people and taking it up again in the resurrection. That will prove that I'm the Messiah, right? That's what Jesus is saying to them. And obviously to the Pharisees who don't believe it will be a sign of condemnation. But for all of those who call upon the name of Christ, it will be a sign of great grace and joy. Amen. So he says he's sorrowful. He's grieved. He's frustrated, he's angry, rightfully so. Jesus never sinned, right? He's allowed to feel this way because of their hardness of heart. And he tells them, you're not getting a sign. It's not what you should be seeking after. You should be seeking after me. I'm here in front of you, the Messiah. Yet you, the religious leaders, reject me, won't listen to me. You'll have one sign. That's going to be the sign of my resurrection. And he leaves them. So what we see is an interaction with people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that have a hardness of heart and this is how Jesus handles himself with them. He's intense with them, right? He's sorrowful with them. He understands they have no intention of believing upon him as their savior. And so he has an interaction and then he walks away, gets in the boat and leaves. So now we get to verse 14. So after this happens, right? He feeds the 4,000, does this great miracle, goes across uh, the sea to Dalmanutha has his interaction with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then now they get back in the boat, and this is kind of where we leave off and where I've been racing to um, that I want to talk to, starting in verse 14. So we'll read uh, a few verses at a time together, and we'll kind of go through this, and then I want to give some encouragements. Verse 14, now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. This is one of the most uh, hilarious and frustrating texts of all time, right? And probably condemning to us because we do the same thing, which we'll talk about this. But 
They literally have, let's just take a timeline here a little bit. I don't know the exact days and times in between, but you got Jesus doing this great miracle where he takes five loaves of bread and two fish and feeds, you know, 5,000 men plus the women and children. So this multitude of people, and it's an amazing story. Fast forward a few weeks later, the same thing happens. The disciples still don't get it. They're still asking how they're going to feed people. And then he feeds the 4,000 plus women and children, great multitude, and does this miracle again. Then a few days later, they get in the boat and they forgot to bring bread because they were unprepared for the journey. And then Jesus begins to talk to them about something that's really important, okay? He's giving them a spiritual lesson, but all they can think about is the bread, right? The first thing, when he mentions 11 of the Pharisees, they're like, oh God, we forgot bread. Why? You know, we're going to starve now on this journey or he's going to be mad at us. And it's just, it's embarrassing. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but I do want to talk about leaven. So just a little lesson. If you don't know what leaven is, it's basically yeast. I'm no bread champion, but basically it takes bread from a tortilla to wonder bread. Okay. That's how you can think about it. All right. And that may be a really bad explanation for those of you bread gurus. Okay. But I don't eat much bread. Okay. So, um, but essentially it's, uh, it's, you know, yeast basically is what it is. It kind of helps the bread to rise. And the leaven is used over and over again in the scriptures as a sign of a corrupting influence that ruins spiritual goodness, essentially, okay? It's something that leads the people of God astray. Now, there are a few texts, if you're being studious, that do use leaven. Uh, a few times, actually, I think Jesus used it as an analogy for the growing of the kingdom, right, and the spreading of the kingdom. So it can be positive, but most of the time, it's very negative when you think about leaven, okay? And... Uh, we get from the count in Matthew when Jesus says, beware of the leaven. He actually says, uh, here he says, the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Uh, but he also says in the count of Matthew, the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we'll get into all that in just a moment. But uh, the point is that in the account in Matthew, he actually ends this whole text by saying, and Jesus was talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So when, when he's talking about this corrupting influence, he's talking about the doctrine, the theology, the teaching of the Pharisees. Now, I want to read a quote for you. See if I can find it. I'm zooming in my notes here. Um, okay, St. Jerome says this. He says, leaven has this property that however small it may be in quantity, it spreads its influence rapidly through the mass. And so if only a little spark of heretical doctrine be admitted into the soul, speedily a great flame arises and envelops the whole man. I thought that was good, right? Jesus uses the analogy, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? It doesn't take much leaven in order to impact the bread in a major way. And this is important for us and we'll get to this in a second, but suffice it to say, what Jesus is saying is that the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Sadducees, the leaven of the Herodians, uh, watch out for it. He's given a warning. He's saying, beware of it because it may creep in. Now, obviously, the disciples are like, all they can think about is lunch, right? All they can think about is, God, man, we didn't, we didn't bring enough food, right? Like, we, like, that was the whole lesson they got from feeding the 4,000 because they're not really seeing what they ought to see. Let's continue into verse 17. So it says, and Jesus, aware of this, so he's aware of this little conversation they're having about the bread after he gave this warning. Uh, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up then? And he said to them, seven. 
And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Okay, he's trying to teach them a lesson because they're not getting it. So, time I have left, I want to give four encouragements here. I want to talk about some lessons we can pull from the, particularly this interaction with the disciples when it comes to our hardness of heart and our spiritual blindness that I hope encourages us and helps us. The first is this, that um, the corruptive influence of false teaching will make you spiritually blind. The first encouragement, okay? Just like we mentioned, it doesn't take a whole lot of leaven to affect the entire loaf of bread, right? And same for us, it doesn't take a lot of bad doctrine to ruin and make shipwreck of our faith. Like we can't do this. We can't say, yes, I'm a good Christian, love theology, love the Bible, love Jesus, but the virgin birth, eh, it is what it is, right? We can let that one go. It's not important. You can't do that. What happens is you end up in some very heretical beliefs, right? Or you can't say, ah, you know, Jesus, he may or may not have been God, but nonetheless, he's our Messiah. He was a good man. Eh, nope. Can't do that either, right? And I could throw in a, a bunch of, now I'm not saying, you know, I joke with the, the early service. I'm not saying you got to have every detail, like, you know, answering the question, should women have head coverings in here right now? That's a hot topic, right? Uh, I'm not saying you got to answer all the questions of the Bible perfectly, but what I do mean is that the things that are important to our faith, the doctrine of our God, right, of this book, we cannot compromise. And, and, and hear me, we have lots of corrupting influences being thrown at us, don't we? I mean, I, I don't know if you've, you've uh, you know, just watched social media lately, you turned on TikTok or whatever, or whatever you look at stuff through, but you get, you know, Jesus was trans, you get a bunch of weird stuff, right? And it's not all that obvious either. And I know we can make the obvious jokes about TBN and, Crefro Dollar and the Prosperity Gospel and many other false doctrines that you could name and mention. But my point is this, that as soon as you allow a little bit of influence from a worldly influence or these kind of worldviews about the Lord that are, uh, or this false doctrine that comes in, you have to guard the gate of your heart and your mind in a very serious way. When Jesus says, Watch out and beware. Those are strong words that he's giving us, right? To watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, I heard John MacArthur say it this way when talking about these influences that Jesus is mentioning. I thought it was good. He basically said that um, the Pharisees were the legalists, the Sadducees were the liberals, and the Herodians were the secularists. And I thought that was a good way to explain it. And I'm not going to get too much into their doctrine, but the point is that if you look at the Pharisees and what they taught, they had the appearance of godliness, the appearance of, of great uh, knowledge of God and great holiness and all of those things, but their influence and their teaching was only corruption. They had not just missed the mark, but they missed the mark completely. They literally wanted to kill the Savior, right? They wanted to slay God. That's how bad that theology was, and so it was a corruption. And so when Jesus looks at them, he's warning them of that kind of leaven. But we have leaven of all kinds in our culture, and I won't go into it, but you, you know what I'm talking about. You have influence of all kinds uh, coming into your brain, into your kid's brain, you name it. And so we ought to be very thoughtful and intentional. It doesn't mean that, you know, if we read one bad book of theology or something that we're going to be corrupted, but it means that we are serious about the truth, right? We're serious about the Lord and about not being corrupted by the leaven. That's why we take theology seriously. It's important. But if we allow that to come into our lives and we pretend like nothing is influencing us around us and we just let our guard down and let it go, this will lead to spiritual blindness and it's not a good thing. And so we must look at that and not become like the Pharisees, but heed 
the warning of Christ. Let's continue. Second lesson here is that it's hard to look to Christ when your eyes are on the bread. Okay? What was happening here is that Jesus, over the course of two miracles, was showing his disciples that he is the provider, that he is the source of all things they need, right? He's the Messiah. He's everything. He's been trying to show them this over and over again. You can trust me. You can trust me. I'm a good God. I provide all that you need. And because they were just so focused on the bread, they couldn't see it for what it is, right? They literally got into the boat after that and were like, dang it. We forgot our bread again. We only got one loaf. We're all going to starve or Jesus is going to be angry with us. The whole point is Jesus doesn't need their bread, right? He doesn't need their bread. He can do it. Trust him. And so for us, the lesson is if we're so focused on the bread, we're going to lose sight of the bread provider, right? We're just, we're going to miss it. Like, we, look, we, we got a lot of circumstances here on this life that we go through, okay? It's hard. It could be financial. It could be health. It could be other. Uh, it could be, um, you know, longing to have things that other people have that for some reason God hasn't allowed you to have. It could be any circumstance. And we spend a lot of our time anxious This is why Jesus warned, he said, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to put on. Like your heavenly father knows that you need these things, right? And he'll provide them for you. But rather he gave us a lesson. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and the rest of these things will be added unto you, right? We spend a lot of time worrying about our circumstances. We spend a lot of time flustered about uh, if if the Lord's going to provide, how he's going to provide. And we're like, we're like, do this habitually. It's embarrassing, right? But we do it. We're just so focused on the bread, we can't hear the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach to us. And so you got to look up from the bread. You got to look at the bread of life, right? You got to look to Christ. You got to look to the Messiah. You got to look to him who provides all things because there's nowhere else to go, right? And all your circumstances, say you're in a financial circumstance. Yeah, you might be able to go out and earn some extra money and do some things, but ultimately that could all fall through, right? There's nowhere else to turn to but the Lord Jesus himself. And he's giving us this lesson right now that we must turn to him, all things physical, all things spiritual. So get your, get your eyes up and look to him. It's important. Don't just look at your bread. <clears throat> Encouragement number three. Remembering Christ's past provisions fuels future faith or present faith might be a better way to say that, okay? Here's what I mean by that. Um, Christ, as, as Christians, we believe the Lord, even fr- from the moment we were being formed in the womb till right now, to the end of the age, we believe that every single moment Christ has been providing for us. The fact that you're alive right now means that the Lord has been watching over you and providing for you. And I'm sure I could ask each and every single one of you, and most of us could at least say, yeah, God's rescued me from this situation. He rescued me from that situation. I remember being so anxious and in turmoil and so distraught but then God did this for me. But what happens? We're like the disciples, right? Which means we get two feet forward after that circumstance. We get one year later and all of a sudden we totally forget what the Lord has done for us, don't we? We forget it. This is why all in the Bible, God's having people set up rocks as monuments and things like that because it's saying the Lord has done this. Don't forget what the Lord has done. That's what Jesus is asking right here. Uh, when he's saying, do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember, right? Well, then he goes in the story. When I broke the bread for the 5,000, how many baskets? How many baskets for the 4,000? Do you not get it? Right, so he's, he's, he's calling them to remember past graces. So that way 
they would look toward the future with hope and grace and mercy. I've done this so many times. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a similar circumstance and just thought, I don't know how we're going to get out of this one, babe. You know, it's not going to happen. Uh, and it's like, you an idiot. I mean, God's done, like, literally over and over again. He's done this despite all my flaws and he does the same for us. And so we ought to look at past graces and you might say, well, I'm in a circumstance that's really hard. You don't know like what you're talking about. You've never been where I'm at. And I would say totally, I've never been where you're at. And I understand that. But, and even if you felt like most of your life has not been a lot of grace, it's been a lot of hardship. It's important that we learn to look back, not just at the promises of God here in the word, but also in what he has done for us that we might remember him. I love the hymn. Uh, Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. It's a great one. That's the chorus, right? It's Jesus, Jesus, how I've trust him, how I've proved him or and or. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, all for grace to trust him more. I won't sing it for you, but I, I will. Did one breath there. That was pretty impressive. <clears throat> What's that? I've proved him over and over and over and over and over and over. And I want that to be your story. That ought to be the story of the Christian is over and over and over and over again. I've messed up. I put myself in bad circumstances. I've sinned. I've fallen short. But Jesus over and over and over and over again has given me grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And all for grace to trust him again and again and again for every time he does it. That's how we ought to live we ought to be, despite all of our circumstances, a very stable people in a very unstable world. And it's not because we're strong. It's not because we're mighty. It's because Jesus has proved himself over and over and over again. And he'll do it over and over and over again. That's what he's trying to teach his disciples. You don't need the bread. And then lastly, and probably most obviously, my fourth encouragement is look to the bread that does not perish. And I stole that from a text. It's John 6, 27. He's getting in an argument with the Pharisees and he's talking to the people and he, he tells them, don't labor for the bread that perishes, but for the bread that I will give you, which is himself, right? He calls himself the bread of life. And so not only do we need to look away from the temporary bread, but we need to look to the bread of life, Jesus Christ slain before the foundations of the world on your behalf so that you might live with him forever and be God's children right? That's what we need to look to. We look to Christ. It's a simple answer in all of our circumstances. We look to him. So I want you to hear this morning when Jesus asked the question, do you not understand or perceive? Should be a question we think about. Do you not get it? Are you, do you have eyes that don't work? Do you not see what I've done? Do you have ears that can't hear? Do you not know my promises? Has it been this long, Eric, that you can't understand what I'm doing and who I am? It's a good question for us this morning. It's a rebuking question, but it's a loving question. And so you might be like one of the Pharisees this morning. Maybe you have a hard heart. Maybe you hate Christ. Maybe you have no idea why you're here. Maybe you want nothing to do with him or his salvation. And to you, my encouragement would be come to Christ. Come to him. Don't vex him any longer. Come to him and get rid of your hard heart. But maybe you've been very anxious for a long time. Maybe you've been in a circumstance where you just find it impossible right now to trust the Lord and what he's going to do in your life. And my encouragement would be the same. Come to him. He's the only one that can provide the bread. He literally multiplied it out of thin air. And he can do it 
for you. You come to him. You trust him. You don't have to be anxious anymore. You just come to him and he'll provide the rest. Or maybe you've let a lot of influence come into your life recently and it's really derailed your faith. My encouragement would be go to war. (laughs) Go to war against the leaven and come to Christ. He is the true Messiah, the true Savior. He is everything you need. And what a grace it is to have him this morning. It's amazing. And he's loving. He has compassion on the crowds. And he can and will have compassion on you if you come to him this morning. May we trust our Messiah together. May we hold fast to Jesus Christ, the bread of life. And I pray this morning your bellies are full. Before you ever go to lunch, I pray your belly is full because Jesus has provided not just enough, not just a little bit, but in abundance. And he offers it to you this morning in the gospel. So before we take of the Lord's Supper, which has a great great tie in an analogy to this, I just want to pray for us real quick, and then we'll take of the Lord's Supper together. So let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I ask this morning that as we consider those words, as we prepare our hearts to take of your supper, and as we are actually encouraged in your supper this morning, that you would just help us to not look at the temporary bread, but to look to you, our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us grace and mercy to do that. I pray for those who are anxious, in turmoil right now, that God, they would prove you once again, over and over. God, they look upon what you've done to them, how you've led them here thus far, and how you will bring them safely home. God, help them to see. I pray for all of us, God. Let us not be spiritually blind. We know that the enemy is putting barriers or veils over our eyes to keep us from seeing the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. And I pray you'd remove that veil for us. You'd help us to see clearly your all-satisfying joy that is ours in the gospel, that despite the circumstance, you are working all things out for our good because you love us, you have compassion on us, and we need you this morning. So help us right now as we take of your supper, God, to be encouraged. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. But I just want to remind us of the grace of God in the Lord's Supper. So here at Providence, we believe the Lord's Supper is a time of remembrance and presence. We believe that as we take of the Lord's Supper, this is not just something kind of frivolous. We don't just think, oh, it's just something cool we do. Uh, It's just kind of weird as a church. Yeah, we just do. We really like bread and grape juice. That's not what this is, right? We believe that every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, which he has given to us, that we are by him in his presence being encouraged, being strengthened for the fight, strengthened in our faith. The elements may be elements, but the Lord Jesus Christ crucified is spiritually nourishing us with his broken body and his shed blood to look to him, to believe in him, to see him, to behold him, to worship him, to know him, and to keep running the race set before us with endurance, that we might one day feast with him in eternity forever. And so my prayer this morning is that you would be so encouraged by the Lord Jesus as we take of the Lord's Supper together. And uh, I just want to leave a little bit of time like we do every uh, Sunday, just for you to reflect about a minute or so, to reflect on Jesus Christ, to look to him, to beg him, Uh, to do it and to do it again and to prove himself over and over because he's faithful to do it. So Providence, I pray the Spirit leads you as you consider Christ.